uh, scriptures, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Um, Father, would you show us Jesus today? Would you show us uh, Christ today in your law and uh, in these books? Would you teach us to read scripture well um, and to see your glory and your majesty in all that we do and think and feel and know? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> so we're talking about finding Jesus in the law. Um, I guess the first question is, who, whose favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus? Is that anybody's favorite book of the Bible? <laughs> Leviticus, is that your favorite book of the Bible? <laughs> so, and part of my goal here is, even if Leviticus isn't going to be your favorite book of the Bible, I would like for you to learn to like it, right? Um, and learn to like these sections of Scripture that are probably long and boring and a little esoteric um, because when we know what to look for these things become a lot, a lot clearer and they become a lot more vibrant um, as we begin to read them well so a lot of times we come to these passages and we will look at like today we'll mostly look at narrative passages but um, lots of these law passages we come to them and, and we think like oh this is just a list of rules and these rules actually don't even really apply to me anymore. Like, I'm never going to build a tabernacle. You know, I'm never going to do sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. So how does this apply to me? And so um, when we come with that, with that mindset and with those kind of presuppositions about what um, these passages of, passages of Scripture teach, um, it's, it's no surprise that it's boring, right? It's no surprise that it's difficult and um, hard to get through. So... That's the goal here, and I'll reiterate that each week, but the goal is that we're going to actually see Christianity, see Christ, see the gospel in these Old Testament books that at first glance don't contain a lot of that. So um, we'll talk more in detail about some of that um, today, and we'll look at some specific scriptures today. Uh, but first, I think we need to talk about what the law is. So when... The way that we, in, in English, divide up the Old Testament is we tend to think in terms of genre. Um, so we, we would make some distinctions between narrative passages, law passages, prophecy passages, wisdom passages. Um, and that's how we divide these things up. But in the Hebrew canon, that division is not so clear. Certainly that's a valid way to, to read the scriptures. But in the Hebrew canon, there's basically three big buckets that everything goes in. There's the law, there's the prophets, and there's the writings. Um, sometimes that's referred to as the Psalms, and we'll look at a um, we'll look at where Jesus actually refers to that last section as the Psalms. But whenever you see in the New Testament, for example, the law of Moses, it's not just talking about those stipulations, lists of commands, things like that. It's talking about the, the first five books of the Bible as a whole. And so in the Jewish mind, those five books hang together as a literary unit. And the narrative pieces, the pieces, you know, Genesis, for example, is part of the law in the Jewish mind. But for us, we read that as like a story. And it is a story, but that story informs, it goes together with the law that's attached to it. 
Same thing, you know, Exodus is, the first half of Exodus is narrative. The second half of Exodus is law. But they go together, and the narrative and the law inform each other and help us interpret um, both of those things. So Torah, the law, the Pentateuch, one literary unit hangs together, and it's the central Jewish scripture. So the first passage we're going to go to tonight is actually not even in um, the Old Testament. We're going to go to Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 44. So, this is after the resurrection. Um, Jesus has already died, rose again, and he's teaching. He's appeared to his disciples. And so, he says in verse 44, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, several things here to notice. First of all, we see this threefold division, right? The law of Moses, he's referring to Genesis through Deuteronomy. The prophets, which in the Hebrew canon includes a lot of the historical books. So, um, Joshua through 2 Kings would be part of this, and then all the prophets that we would know. And then the writings, uh, which he refers to as the Psalms. That's shorthand because the Psalms is obviously a very big book, and it's the beginning of um, that section of Scripture. So he's saying everything, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now that's interesting because certainly we know that the law and the prophets and the Psalms and, and the writings refer to Jesus, but he's suggesting that all of this stuff in the Psalms is actually um, revealing something about the gospel, right? So verse 45, or verse 46, he's saying in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, so Jesus is saying, that that's the gospel, right? That Jesus is going to suffer, die, rise on the third day for the remission of sins. He's saying that you can find that. You can find that gospel in the law of Moses. And so that's the kind of thing we're looking for. When we're, when we're reading the Old Testament, when we're, we're reading the Pentateuch, we're looking for the gospel. And Jesus himself is telling us that it's there. And so it's not there, obviously there's, it's not there in its fullness, and it takes some un, unveiling, some unwrapping to get the total um, picture of it. But if you think about when the New Testament was written, um, the, the first preachers, the first apostles in the New Testament did not have the New Testament. They were writing it. And so when they are preaching from the scriptures, they are preaching from the Old Testament. They're preaching Jesus from the Old Testament. 
That's what Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, for example. Jonah, you can preach Jesus from Jonah. And so, all that to say, um, we shouldn't look at the law as something that is a separate entity from the rest of the Bible. We shouldn't think, and we shouldn't think on the, on the flip side of that. We shouldn't think of the New Testament as its own standalone thing independent of the Old Testament because they all hang together in continuity and teach us about Jesus. Does that make sense? So, um, when we talk about law, we're talking about these five books that, are, that function as one literary unit um, in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so, we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament. We're looking for Christ in the law. Um, so, we need to talk about um, some key methods, some key models uh, for understanding uh, the law. And these are going to frame... I'm going to give you, I would encourage you to write some of these questions down that I'm going to ask. And this will give you a way to frame um, your, your study of the Old Testament. So the first thing to, to think about is when we look at the law, we're looking at it, it's, this has been described as a Christocentric method to, to understand the law in terms of Christ. This is opposed to something like a dispensationalist method where we say there's a total bifurcation from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Or the theonomic method, which says that actually the whole law hangs together and that we are still bound by it. So we're, we're kind of between those two extremes. On, on one extreme, you would say the law doesn't apply to us at all. It totally applies to some other people that are no longer around. Or you can say that the law totally applies to us, that we should still you know, have the civil laws of the Old Testament. We're kind of somewhere in the middle, and that's, that's what we're going for, is to understand this in terms of prophetic f- fulfillment, in terms of Christ, um, not in terms of, it's not totally done away with, but there's also been progression and change and growth in the covenants. Um, and so that's what we're looking for. But, so there's two different methods that I, I kind of want us to focus on um, in terms of how we understand this. First, um, there's this medieval method called the quadriga. Um, and that sounds complicated, but it's just asking four questions. And so here, here's, here's four questions when we're in the Old Testament that we want to ask. First, and this, this is going to be, I don't know, maybe obvious, but first question, what does it mean? What does it mean? And what we're talking about there is the original meaning, right? For the original audience, for the original hearers, how did they understand this? Okay? So we can, we can talk about meaning in terms of um, what it means for us, what it means um, to everybody that has ever read that. But generally, when we're talking about the meaning of a passage, we want to talk about the original meaning, original context, original audience. So that would include asking questions like, what scripture was available, what scripture had been written when this was written? And for the case of the Old Testament law, basically nothing, right? Um, I am of the opinion that Moses wrote all of the Torah, all of the Pentateuch. Um, And so what that means is, that in one man's lifetime, you had no scripture, and then you had five books of the Old Testament, right? Um, certainly there was oral tradition that was passed down probably before that. Um, Moses probably knew the creation story that had been passed down before him, um, and we would say that's trustworthy. It's, we, we trust the scriptures, and we trust that Moses got it right, um, but he wasn't totally on his own. Moses also had um, elders who were judges and making decisions for him and helping him. 
Um, and a lot of the law is actually case law, which we have that in the United States, where um, you have like a law that's on the books, and then a judge will look at that law and say, well, here's how it applies in specific situations and everything. And in fact, Deuteronomy, we'll, we'll talk about this in our last week, um, Deuteronomy is just an exposition of the Ten Commandments, right? And I'll, I'll show you that and break that down later. But, um, so that's the first question. What does it mean? And we're considering all of these different factors. Second question. What does it say about Christ? What does it say about Christ? So this is where it gets a little bit harder. Because this isn't going to always be obvious. And it's going to require us to be familiar with the story of Christ, right? If we know the Gospels, this is going to be a whole lot easier. Um, If we know the New Testament, this is going to be a whole lot easier. Um, As we continue to study the law and as we continue to study the Bible, and we have a better sense of these themes and motifs and and learning how to catch this stuff, that'll be easier to to ask. But uh, the key word that you want to keep in mind is typology. So... We're looking for types of Christ, or what that means is um, images or forms of Christ before Christ. So one example of this is you'll remember the story of uh, Jacob wrestling with God. And so we would say that is a type of Christ. God wrestling there, that's a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus um, in the Old Testament. And um, that's a type of Christ. Adam also, and we'll talk about this in more detail, Adam is a type of Christ, and that's something that actually Paul explicitly tells us in Romans 5, that in some way, Adam is prefiguring and pointing to Christ. Another one that I mentioned earlier, Jonah is a type of Christ. So this is a man who had a real life, who, who was as normal as you and me in some ways, but his life is modeled after what would come in Christ's life, right? So think about he was in the belly of the whale, He went down to the deep for three days, and he comes back up, right? So that's that's kind of what we're looking for. We're looking for these types and shadows of Christ to come. So first question, what does it mean? Second question, what does it say about Christ? Third question, what am I supposed to do? So this is the moral question. What am I supposed to do? This one is probably the easiest to get to, right? Um, So, for example, if we're talking about David and Goliath, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to trust God, right? Um, If we're talking about the Ten Commandments, what am I supposed to do? Obey the Ten Commandments, right? And so this one, and this is like what we'll teach children first a lot of times. We'll teach the children first, like, what's what's the story of Joshua about? Uh, Be strong and courageous, right? And there's a, there's a moral angle to it. Um, and I would argue that if we believe that the scriptures are useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, and we believe that all scriptures are God-breathed, then there is a moral angle in all of this. And it may be as simple as trust God, like David and Goliath. Um, but there is, there's always a response embedded in these, where we're supposed to respond in obedience. So... What does it mean? First question. Second, what does it say about Christ? Third, what am I supposed to do? And fourth, what does this say about last things? What does it say about last things? By that I mean, um, 
the end of the ages, the apocalypse, the end of all things. Um, what does it say about Revelation? It's another way you put it. So there are these themes and motifs that run through the Bible. Um, one of them we'll look at today. We're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2. Um, the garden theme, for example. So there's a garden. There's like temple themes and everything going on. And you see a continuity between what's happening in Genesis 1 and this perfect order and perfect harmony. And that points to heaven, right? Lots of kingdom themes do the same thing, right? Jesus promises a kingdom of heaven. We pray that thy kingdom come. And that's a future reality that we look forward to. And so we're thinking about, in terms of, of where we are, we're kind of in the middle between the stuff that's gone before and the, the last things ahead. And we're looking at how do, how do I fit between those things, right? How does this stuff inform my direction going forward? Does that make sense? So um, that's the fourth question. What does it say about last things? So four questions. What does it mean? What does it say about Christ? What am I supposed to do? And what does it say about last things? Are there any questions or comments, concerns on that? Okay. The next method or model uh, that we want to look at, and by the way, I'm going to, after I, we talk about these models, I'm going to walk through Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to use these questions to study it. So, um, The second model, though, is covenant theology. Um, this is, covenant theology is the reformed hermeneutic, which means basically our way of interpreting scripture. And so this is what we believe, this is how we believe that scripture is organized in terms of covenants and progressive revelation, right? So what I mean by that, not in terms of like political progressive, but that God um, over time reveals more, right? So Adam and Eve had less than Abraham, who had less than Moses, who had less than David, and we have the fulfillment and completion of all of that, okay? And so we have, we have full revelation now, but over time, through these covenants, God has revealed himself in Scripture. So um, each period of covenant history, so we're going we're gonna to talk about one of the covenants tonight, but um, each period of covenant history... Um, or another way to say it is each dispensation is going to have continuity and discontinuity with the ones on either side of it, right? So there are things from the older covenants that come forward into the newer covenants. And there are things in the older covenants that stop, right? So, for example, the reason that we do infant baptism here is because we believe that there's continuity between the inclusion of children in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? So children were included in the Mosaic Covenant and the Old Covenant, and so therefore, because there's continuity between the Old and New Covenants, children are included in the New Covenant. Something, for example, that wouldn't be continuous would be temple sacrifice, right? We don't do animal sacrifice anymore because that has been fulfilled in Christ. And so that's an essential discontinuity. And so one of the things we're looking for is we have to ask the question, where are we in covenant history? What covenant is operating right now in, in this text? And how does it relate to the covenants before and after? And there's actually, within the first five books of the Bible, there's a lot of covenants that unfold. 
the only covenant that doesn't in the Old Testament um, is that doesn't occur in these five is the covenant with David in 2 Samuel. But all the other covenants in the Old Testament are ratified in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Okay. So that's, that's the question we're asking, asking. What is the same? What is different in this covenant versus the previous and the next covenant? So that requires us to know, and we'll talk about this, the order of covenants later, but that requires us to know what covenant we're in, right, and, and relative to um, other portions of Scripture. <clears throat> so we're going to talk about covenant theology a lot, and we'll, we'll go into more detail, but are there any questions about that at this point? So we have um, this quadrant of the four questions. We have covenant theology. And we're also looking for themes and motifs. Themes and motifs. So um, themes recur in a progressive fashion, like the covenants. And similar to kind of these types of Christ, you'll have things that occur over and over and over and over again. And if something occurs over and over and over again, you know that it's important. That's... In, in Hebrew thought, repetition is how we determine what's important. That's why, for example, in the Psalms, you'll have lots of doubling. You'll have a verse and a verse that seems like to say almost exactly the same thing in a slightly different way. That's what repetition is the way that we emphasize things in Hebrew. And so that's on the level of words, right? So if you see repeated words, you know that that's important. Um, that's on the level of phrases, repeated phrases are important, like the word of the Lord is a phrase that's repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. But also, it goes to the level of motifs and themes. If you see a repeated theme, that's an important theme. So, examples include, like we talked about earlier, kingdom, creation, garden, sacrifice. These themes, you'll see them reappear. Um, to, to pursue the garden thing for a minute, if you think about, in, in the back half of Exodus, how the, the tabernacle is described, it looks a lot like a garden. There's lots of flowers, there's palm trees down the side, there's pomegranates everywhere, right? So it's, you see that theme re- recurring. And then when we get to the in Revelation, and we get to heaven, and we see heaven in Revelation, there's rivers, there's trees, there's flowers, there's fruit, Right? And so we're looking for that. When we, when we see those kinds of things, we're looking for them to, to recur um, later in Scripture. <clears throat> One we'll look at tonight specifically is the tree of life, which happens in Genesis 1. These are the three big, big ones. Genesis 1, Psalm 1, which is basically in the middle of the Bible, and then a revelation. Right? So we'll, we'll talk about that, that in detail in a second. But <clears throat> So... That's kind of a lot, and we'll, we'll walk through some passages, and from now on, we're going to rely on these methods, rely on these models to just interpret Scripture. And so for the next five weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to open the Bible, we're going to look at a passage, we're going to ask these kinds of questions and unpack it. And the hope is that as we get some practice on this, get some practice on interpreting these, that you'll be able, you'll feel comfortable doing this on your own and not feel like you're going off the rails, so... Um, one thing I would recommend, and I don't have a, I have the Old Testament versions of these at home, but this is what I had in the office. 
get a good like expository commentary um, for whatever book you're reading. These, the Tyndale commentaries, are um, they're not too technical. They'll, they will reference Greek and Hebrew, but it's not going to be like complicated or extreme. Um, and they're relatively cheap. They're you know 20 bucks a piece or something like that. So um, don't go out and buy the whole set. But <laughs> you can buy these one at a time if you want to study a book. Um, but they're they're good because they will pick up on some of these themes, motifs, um, and and ideas that are recurring throughout um, the Old Testament. So another thing to, to consider is, um, and all this is available online now, the Strong's Concordance. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that. Um, my mom used to have the uh, the big book with all the numbers and stuff in it. Now I just Google everything now, but. Um, that's available online, and that will help you too. If you if you see a word appearing multiple times, um, you can know like maybe I should look that word up, right? We'll talk about, for example, probably next week, the word rock. So, just a, a fun fact for right now. We'll I'll unpack this all next week. But the first time God is described as a rock in the Old Testament is Exodus 17, and in Hebrew, there's two words for rock, and from that point forward, from Exodus 17 forward. Every time that specific word is used, it's in reference to God, right? And so a concordance will help you catch those things. That you don't have to be an expert in Hebrew to to catch that if you're if you're looking for um, just keywords and passages. So, any questions at this point? Any concerns? Well, now let's go to the law in earnest. Let's go to Genesis one. Um, which is always a great place to start. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2 right now. And I'll I'll just kind of give you an overview of it, but I'm sure that most of you are familiar with Genesis 1 and 2. And then we're going to hone in on Genesis 2, 15 through 17, which is the covenant of works. This is a covenant. We're going to unpack all that. So Genesis 1 as you know, starts with the creation of the world. God speaks by his spirit, and so you have a triune God there. There's God the Father speaking the word of God, who is Christ, by the power of the spirit who's hovering over the face of the deep. And he creates by his word. The earth was formless and void, and so God forms it and fills it, right? So the first three days, God is creating spaces for things to go in. He creates the land, he creates the water, he creates the sky. And then the second three days, he fills it. He gives plants, he gives animals, fish, birds. Then on the sixth day, he creates man and woman. He creates Adam and Eve in his own image, and he gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so he creates them and gives them this command. Seventh day, he rests. Does God need to rest? No, but he rests for us, and it's, it's designed for us. So Genesis 2, 5 through 25 then, are zooming in on this day six thing, right? So Genesis 1 through, it's not a second creation, right? Genesis 1 through 7 is an overview, or Genesis Chapter 1, the seven days are an overview. And then Genesis 2 zooms in on day 6. And so, I wish I had time to go into all this because this is fascinating, but 
Genesis 1 and 2 kind of mirror each other, right? So we talked about the forming and filling where God is creating these spaces for things to go in and then putting them there. That happens in Genesis 2, right? So when there was no bush of the field, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord had not caused it to rain. The Lord formed the man, so he created Adam and places him in the garden, right? So Adam is created before the garden, and he's, he's placing him there. We'll talk about the, the importance of that in a minute. And he creates an environment for Adam to flourish. There are rivers, it's lush. Um, there's gold and gems, and it's, it's this beautiful place. And the Lord God, this is um, chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, was that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, that's Genesis 1 and 2. That's the general... I read the second half of that because we'll, we'll go back to, to that and study it in more detail. But, let's think about our four questions. First, what does it mean? Well... God created everything. That's one thing. God created everything, and he placed humanity in this world that he created and in a garden to have dominion over it in submission to God. And he made them in his image, right? So basically what it says is what it means. And I have a, I have a rule for interpreting the Bible that um, I wish more people would follow, but the Bible never means the opposite of what it says. So if the Bible says something, that's what it means. So... Um, don't do gymnastics with, with the Bible. But, so that's God created. He created man. He created the garden. He created the world. Now what does this say about Christ? Well, let's look at Adam. Um, in verse 7, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Which That's a double word, right? So that's um, in Hebrew, that's living life. Right? So that's a doubled word. That's an, an emphasis. And he planted a garden, and he put the man who he had formed, um, and he put the, there, there he put the man whom he had formed. And so this place is full of life. And Adam is a priest king in the garden. Right? So you'll notice that the garden is not the whole world. Right? He could have, God could have made the whole world like this, the whole world lush. But there's a sense in which 
the whole world is not like that. Um, and that, that's kind of, this is kind of an implication of that. But um, he's placing Adam in this good place, in this palace, in this temple, in the broader world. And he tells Adam in verse 15 to work and to keep it. Now that's priestly language. Um, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But Adam is a priest for this temple that God has created. And these words that are all being used here get repeated in the explanation of the tabernacle and the temple later on, and we'll talk about that in detail. But Adam also has the rights of a king, right? He's naming animals. He's declaring things like God declared the creation, right? So Adam's, in a lot of ways, mirroring the creation of God, right? He's working and keeping, and he's bringing life into this garden. He's tending the garden. He's naming the animals. He's speaking like God speaks. And so Adam is a type of Christ, this priest king, which is a thing that comes up over and over again in the Old Testament, the the priest king. Um, In the Mosaic Covenant up to David, the king and the priest were separate. Um, But there's always this this kind of pull of priest and king together. There's Melchizedek in Genesis 14, I believe. And then Jesus is a a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest king. Adam is also a prophet. Um, What came first, Eve's creation or the commands to not eat the tree? The command, right? So Eve did not hear the command from God. And so Adam has a prophetic role to teach and preach the word of God to Eve, right? So Adam is prophet, Adam is priest, and Adam is king, and he's intended to be the ideal version of this. We know later that he falls. And so we have this failed prophet, this failed priest, this failed king, right? He's a failed king because he doesn't exercise dominion. He, he, he fails to tend the garden well. He's a failed priest because he doesn't protect the garden, right? He lets enemies into the holy place. And he's a failed prophet because he doesn't properly teach Eve the word. And so this is pointing to Jesus who comes as the perfect priest, who guards the temple, who has perfect dominion, and who preaches the word perfectly because he is the word of God. And so Adam, where Adam fails in all these things, Christ does perfectly. So this is teaching us what Christ is like, what he's supposed to do, what Christ's purpose is. Christ's purpose is to be prophet, priest, and king over the garden and to tend and keep this, this place that he's covenanted to keep. Okay. So that's the second question. What does it say about Christ? Third question, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to honor God as creator. Um, God, because he's creator, is sovereign over all things, the source of all things. And so since he's the creator of the world, we're called to be obedient to him. There are ordinances that are laid out in Genesis 2. Sabbath rest is one of them. So we're supposed to rest on the Sabbath because God rested. That gets explained more in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. Um, we're supposed to honor the institution of marriage. That's explained here. This is um, the first marriage. And so there's a lot we can learn about marriage here. This is actually the place that Jesus goes when he's talking about marriage. Um, we learn about work that we're actually called before the fall to work. So 
Um, in heaven, we will have work to do. We will have temple work to do in heaven, um, which will be ultimately the work of worship. But um, work is not something that happened after the fall. It's not that we all just get to rest forever. Um, but the, there is a sense in which we will. But there's a pattern of work and rest that's laid out here. And so we, we learn about these things, about Sabbath, work, and marriage, all in Genesis 2, and we're called to honor those commands and honor those things. Um, and that's explained again more as, as this unfolds progressively through covenant theology. And then what does this say about the last things? Well, there's a, there's a sense in which the garden is imperfect. The garden is perfect, and that there's no sin, it's all good, but it hasn't reached its full fruition, Right? It's still a garden and not a city. And you actually see this progression from garden to garden city throughout the Bible. And so it's undeveloped. Human creativity hasn't taken hold, right? Um, the, the dominion that Adam is called to exercise isn't complete yet, right? The idea is that Adam's going to go and have dominion over the whole world, but he never actually manages to get dominion over even a little bit of it. And so this is pointing to a time when the whole earth is going to be the garden. The whole earth together is the garden, and it's going to be this temple place where the Lord is, and this imperfect garden that doesn't come together ultimately because of sin is going to be renewed and made even better than creation. So a lot of times we think about, we can think about the restoration of creation, um, and a lot of people frame it this way, that we're going to go back to the garden. But that's not exactly the case. We're actually going forward to something better, to a better perfection, Right? Um, when, this is the medieval theologians used to look this way. But think about what perfection is. What is a perfect tree? Is a perfect tree static or is it always fruitful? Right? So if we're talking about true perfection, it's always continuing to grow and abound and be fruitful more and more. And so the garden is that way. Um, in, in its state, in Genesis 1 and 2, the garden is not truly perfect but it becomes perfect through the work of Christ and through um, his return and institution of the kingdom. So that's the answer to our four questions. What does it mean? What does it say about Christ? What are we supposed to do? And what does it say about last things? Does everybody follow that? Does that make sense? So we're going to revisit those four questions over and over again as we um, look at all these passages. And we'll look at some harder passages. This one is pretty... um, if you, know, if you know your Bible relatively well, this one's not too hard. Um, but it'll get harder, I promise. So I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. But, <laughs> um, but let's zoom in in our last few minutes. Well, let's zoom in on Genesis 2, 15 through 17. And this is our first covenant in the Bible. Um, sometimes it's called the covenant of works. Um, another way you can put it is the covenant of life. In fact, the the Westminster Larger Catechism calls it the covenant of life. Some people have called it the covenant of creation. But the point is that it is a covenant. So a covenant, just a simple definition, you may want to write this down. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That's coming from O. Palmer Robertson, if you ever want to read his book, Christ and the Covenants. But a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So a covenant is a family relationship, ultimately, right? It's tying people together um, as intimate as brothers. That's why 
for example, in the New Covenant, we're brought into the family of God. We're adopted into the family of God because it's a family relationship. And that's why it's a bond in blood. When we talk about the sovereignly administered part, there's this relationship between head of the covenant and the subordinate. Um, you, you see this in lots of treaties in the Old Testament uh, period. There's this idea of sovereign and vassal, that there's a king who gets another king to submit to him. right? And so, again, if Adam is a king of the garden, this covenant is the overall king having the king of the earth submit to him. Adam is the king of the earth. Right. And so God is the ultimate king of the earth. Adam is the lesser king of the earth. And Adam submits to God in this covenant. So there's two parties. There's God who is triune. We've already talked about how God speaks his word by the spirit to create. And so we have the triune God, the God that we know from scripture here. And we have Adam, who God has created as the king of the earth. And so God is sovereign. God is all-powerful by the virtue of his creation. And he's created Adam to be his vassal king. So Adam is given kingly rights. We've already talked about this, but Adam is given kingly rights. He's given the right to name animals. He's given a queen. He's given priestly duties. He's given the, the duties to work and to keep. Those words, again, get used later on to describe the temple work. And he's given a prophetic covenant authority to preach the word to, to Eve and to his offspring after her. Now, it's important, too, that Eve is actually created from Adam's rib, and Eve is created after Adam. Because one of the, the central points of the gospel that, that Paul is explaining in Romans is that all men and all women and all people are descended from Adam, including Eve. So Adam, not just by virtue of their marriage, but by virtue, virtue of their creation, is the covenant head over Eve. And what that means is that he is responsible for Eve. And so when Eve sins, Adam is responsible for Eve's sin as much as she is because he doesn't repent of it. He fails to, to prophesy the word to her and all those things. And so we are all not only under Adam's covenant, federal headship, but also under his natural headship by our descendant from, descendants from him. And so we're joined in the covenant together under Adam. And so this covenant is a covenant between God and Adam, but by virtue of the covenant between God and Adam, we're also all involved in this before the gospel comes. Included in this covenant are some stipulations. So generally, there's the law of nature, which you know, we can see that in Romans 1. But it's also a law of nature that, like marriage is a law of nature. Um, that's what uh, verse 24 of chapter 2 is talking about. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That's a natural law that God has embedded into the way things are made and created. Um, and so they're called to obey that. But also, God gives some specific regulations, some specific things. If you want to remain in this covenant, you need to do. So we talked about some of the, other, the things earlier where marriage, Sabbath, work, those sorts of things are part of the covenant. But the central specific stipulation that God gives is in verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? So God has covenanted with Adam this covenant of life where if Adam remains in the covenant, Adam gets life. By virtue, by the way, of the tree of life. Right? The, the tree of life is what gives him eternal life. 
And so, in order to remain in a positive relationship with God, he has to be faithful to this covenant and be faithful to these stipulations. Um, now, if he's faithful to these stipulations, if he's faithful to the commands, he'll have blessings. And if he's unfaithful, he'll have curses. So, the blessing is eternal life. If, God, if Adam is faithful to the covenant, he's going to have eternal life. He's going to have access to the tree of life. Now, I talked about how we're going we're gonna to unpack this a little bit, but the tree of life first appears here in Genesis 2, but then you see it again in, well, you see it several times, but the next big kind of picture of it is in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked, right? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He's like a tree planted by streams of flowing water, right? His leaves never, never wither. That gets picked up again in Revelation 21, where we have the tree whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. And so we bring all of this, this data back into Genesis 1. This is the benefit of having the whole of Revelation. We can look ahead and see what's actually going on here. But who is the man, in Psalm 1, who is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, whose delight is in the law of the Lord? Who's the epitome of that? Jesus, right? So Jesus is like a tree planted by still waters, by flowing streams. And Jesus is the tree whose leaves for the, for the healing of the nations, right? The early church fathers used to say that where, Jesus, where, sin, where, where Adam sinned on a tree, Jesus canceled our debt on a tree, right? And so Jesus becomes the fruit of the tree of life, right? The tree of life, Adam eats the fruit and gets to live. But then Jesus dies on a tree. We come to communion and we um, ensign, not, in, not physically, but we ensign, eat the body and blood of Christ, who is the fruit of this new tree of life. Right? So the tree of life never goes away, but the, the reality that we see in Revelation and in Psalms and going back to Genesis 1 is that Jesus is the tree of life. Jesus is the fruit that Adam eats to live. And so even the covenant of works, even the covenant, covenant at the very beginning is gracious in that Christ is there. And in a sense, not in, not in the same way that we're redeemed, but in a sense he's redeeming Adam and Eve, right? And so the tree of life is really central to um, eternal life. That this is how we get eternal life, right? By feeding on Jesus, by abiding in Jesus, who is the fruit of the tree of life. So that's... That's one of our types, right? That's pointing forward to Christ. But the curse of the old, of the um, covenant of works is death. If they obey God, they get to eat of the tree of life. If they disobey God, they will surely die. They'll die in body. And so you see there's this immediate deterioration of their bodies, and they start to die. They don't die immediately, but their, their life is taken away. They lose their comfort, right? They, they have to toil for, for their food. Uh, childbirth is painful all of a sudden. Um, the things that should be easy are now hard. Their work is hard. They, their soul dies. They lose access to God. They're separated from God. Their peace dies. And so all these curses come to bear when Adam and Eve sin at the tree. And ultimately, they come to bear when Adam sins, right? You'll notice God could have very well come down when Eve sinned 
and struck Eve down. But he didn't. Adam sinned. And Adam's sin is the one that's imputed to us. Right? Now certainly they're, they're tied together. They're all interrelated. Um, but Adam's sin, Adam sins on a tree and we're, we're redeemed by way of a tree. So that's the, the basic model for a covenant. And you see it there in Genesis 2. There's two parties, a sovereign and a vassal, a, a head and a, a subject in the covenant. There are stipulations, right, that remain for them to remain in a good relationship. And then there are blessings and curses. If you obey, here's what you get. If you disobey, here's what you get. And so that's the basic structure of a covenant. We're not going to go into the uh, continuities and discontinuities because I need to go ahead and finish here. But um, next week we'll talk about the covenant of grace that is instituted. Um, you actually see this in Genesis uh, 3.15. While we're there, I'll go ahead and read it. But this is God speaking to the serpent, cursing him. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so, again, snake imagery is important. We'll talk about that more more in detail when we get to Exodus. Um, Just as a a hint, there's a a snake that eats the other snakes in um, the court of Pharaoh. There's a snake that gets held up where people look at it. And they're healed from their disease, right? And so the gospel gets unfolded almost immediately after um, this sin. And this new covenant, the old covenant falls away. Um, it's, it's still enforced, but we're under the curses of that covenant because of the disobedience, right? And, and God institutes a new covenant. And this covenant in Genesis 3.15 becomes the model for all of the covenants after. So Abraham, Moses, David, Phineas, which you may not be familiar with that one, but we'll talk about that one. All of those covenants are unpacked in, um, in detail. So, Any questions about uh, Genesis 1 and 2, about any of these models and methods, anything like that? Is this, do you think this is helpful? Is this, okay, good. Well, let's pray, and uh, we'll let the choir go ahead and get started. Father, thank you um, for your covenant works for us, for your covenant faithfulness. Uh, Father, thank you for Christ and his covenant faithfulness and obeying your covenant of works and dying on a tree so that we can eat from the tree of life so we can feed on him spiritually and be renewed in new life. Um, Father, would you teach us to look for Christ everywhere? And most importantly, to look for Christ in your word in the place where he showed us he would be. Father, would you open our eyes to your scriptures and help us to interpret them rightly, divide them rightly, and to understand um, what you have for us there. And ultimately, Father, would you teach us to follow Christ and to honor him in all that we do. Um, We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.